Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Glad to see you. I'm going to jump right in. I want to respect everyone's time. We do try to end on a timely manner, partly because of just our next gathering and the kids. But I want to respect your guys this time and uh, really looking forward to today. And if you're visiting for the first time, again, just want to say thanks for coming and we're glad you're here. I met some of you earlier uh, this afternoon and I hope I get to meet the rest of you at some point. And we're actually on a part two of a series that we started last week. There's actually a topic that I've been wanting to talk on for a number of months here at Studio. And I didn't feel a freedom or a release, if you will, to actually go after that until last weekend, Saturday, I was like, it's time to go after this. So we're actually right now on week two of what at the moment is going to be about a four-week conversation. Tanasha is going to bring next week for week three, so make sure you're here for that. Yeah, you will not want to miss it. And then we'll see if we we can uh, wrap it up on week four. If not, we'll just make it keep going. It's a domino that may never stop falling. And so I'm going to jump right in, and I just want to get into this with you guys. And I want to encourage you to engage with me intellectually. Engage with me intellectually today. And I believe some of you will learn that when you engage intellectually, sometimes it creates spiritual breakthrough. So I've shared this last week. Sometimes some talks are for the heart. Some talks are for the spirit and some talks. Some talks are for the spirit and some talks are for the mind, for the intellect. And last week and this week is a lot to intellectual interaction and engagement, but it's actually incredibly spiritual. So today we're going to do part two. I'm going to do a quick review on last week just in case you weren't here. And if we have it on the podcast, if you want to get the fuller version of it, uh, this should be Cliff's notes. But last week we talked about the early church, which is roughly the time of Jesus to about 300 A.D. The reason why we talked about it because it, it was a dynamic and revolutionary rogue fringe movement. Like what we consider Christianity as an established religion today, it was nothing like that in the first 300 years. It was this radical, revolutionary fringe group of people that were heavily persecuted and heavily punished in their faith in a man named Jesus that had just died on the cross. They were called Christians. We also took a look at how, we took a look at how Christianity went from being a dynamic revolutionary movement and it, it went to what we find in the scriptures and early documents. They were everywhere in culture and society, how they went from that to ending up in buildings in rows of chairs with attendant structures. We talked about that last week. This week, we're going to look at one of the signatures. Say that with me, signatures. We're going to look at one of the signatures of this same dynamic revolutionary grassroots movement, which was miracles and healing. That was one of the signature things about the early church, was miracles and healing. I understand many of you come from very different backgrounds. Some of you are in a, I don't believe there's a God. And some of you are like, I'm not sure. And then some of you are like, I believe there's a God, but I don't believe in healing and miracles. And others of you are like, I believe in God, but why do these things happen? And others of you are like, I'm all about miracles and healing. And in this room alone, I'm sure I didn't get everybody, but I just recognize in this room, we have a wide variety of people 
on their own experiences and backgrounds when it comes to this very topic of miracles and healings. And so I'm going to ask for you to put some of that to the side. Instead of using it as filters, I want you to listen to me and engage with me today with your heart and, of course, with your mind, because we're going to talk about that. One of the overarching questions humanity has had to wrestle with through the centuries is, does God heal? The other question that humanity has had to wrestle with from the beginning of time is, does God cause sickness and disease? These are overarching questions. For the church, for the ones in here that are following Jesus, some of the overarching questions are, is healing supposed to be normal in my life? Or is it not supposed to be normal? Is it dead? Some of the other questions we ask is whether God wants to heal or he doesn't want to heal. Or does he pick and choose who he wants to heal? It's a little bit like Russian roulette. I would ask that we engage, listen to me closely today. And before we get into this, I want to pray because this talk needs to be covered in prayer because we're going to tackle some things today. And I'm excited. I hope you have enough caloric value in your brain today because your brain is going to burn calories. Look at your neighbor and say, get ready to lose some calories today. Father, I ask that you would cover this talk with your spirit. I ask that your presence would be in this room. I ask that you would be in the hearts and minds of people in this room. And I pray for anything that is said that needs clarity or needs emphasis that as it pertains to the listener today. I ask for your covering today and I ask for your clarity to be in the atmosphere as we dive into something incredibly important. Amen. We're going to talk, I'm going to give you a brief history of the last 2,000 years. <laughs> brief is the key word here. Okay, so we're, we're not going to cover it exhaustively. This would take weeks and weeks and weeks and books and volumes, and we don't have the time for that right now, although I have tremendous value for that. But I want to give you, I want to lay out a brief history when it comes to signs and wonders and miracles from the early church all the way to today. Now, for those of you that follow Jesus in this room, that you've given your life to God, I think all of us would be able to say this, that when God touches you, it's pretty powerful. For some of you, it was when you gave your, your life to him, you put your faith in him, and he came into your spirit. He came into you, and he brought life to you. You were dead, and now you're alive. Some of you, for the first time in your life, experienced what it's like to actually be alive. Not just physically alive, but spiritually alive, what affects your entire being. You felt like half of you were dead, and all of a sudden, when God came into that space in your soul, that all of a sudden, oh, I thought I was alive, but I actually, in fact, I was actually dead. And, but because of God in your life. But what's fascinating is when God makes you alive, Paul lays this out in the book of Ephesians, that he makes you alive, then he raises you up. And then there's actually a third part, he said, and he makes you sit in the heavenly places. So just because you've been touched by God, it doesn't always mean that you've been transformed. Being touched by God is just the sheer grace of the Lord and the agape love. If you're not a note taker, I would encourage you to be quickly become one in the next two seconds because you're going to want to write some of this stuff down. 
Just because you've been touched by God, it doesn't mean you've always been transformed. And so what the beauty of when God touches you, it has the ability to transform you from the inside out. Maybe you had a heart of stone. You were calloused. You were bitter because of life experiences, because of things that have happened to you. But when God comes in you, all of a sudden this heart of stone became soft. It became actually empathy re-entered your algorithm. Sympathy entered into you, and you realize, oh my, that heart of stone actually is now a heart of flesh. And all of a sudden, you're being transformed by the transformative power of the Spirit of God. Now, what's fascinating is we actually, just because you get transformed, it doesn't actually mean it changes the world around you. But it can. When God actually, when you allow the Spirit of God to transform you from the inside out, all of a sudden you will step into this world and you will actively be looking for ways to bring reformation. Some of you are simply your home. You, you got saved. God touched you. And all of a sudden you're experiencing virtues that you've never experienced before. All of a sudden you're experiencing emotions you've never experienced before. All of a sudden, you've experienced ways of thinking and pattern that are very much God's ways and pattern. All of a sudden, you realize, oh, there's a different way of doing life. And then you step into your home, your marriages, your relationship, your workplace, your school, wherever you fill your life with. All of a sudden, you are now actively have the privilege and opportunity to actually reform the environment that you live in. Some of my most favorite stories are hearing of a mom and a dad who gave their life to Jesus and a husband and wife, and their marriage is just horrible. The fact that they're even married is a miracle in of itself. And all of a sudden, they get touched by God, they're transformed, and now they bring reformation to their marriage. They literally become a different husband and wife. And their marriage changes, their home changes, their children change. So reformation is it's actually a result of being touched by God, being transformed by God, and then reformation enters the equation. Now, these aren't three graduation levels. It's not like you graduate from being touched by God and you graduate into the space where you get transformed. And then if you really hold on tight, you graduate to reformation. This is actually an ecosystem that must continue perpetually, continually being touched by God, continually being transformed by the power of his spirit, and continually actively engaging in bringing reformation to the world that you live within. Are you guys still with me? This is what it is. And tonight, I want to talk about the Reformation. We're going to look at a time in history that is coined as the Reformation. It is also coined as the Renaissance. It Renaissance was a cultural movement that began in Italy and it spread across Europe, while the Reformation was the Northern European Christian movement. The Renaissance paved the way for the advancement in art and culture and architecture. The Reformation paved the way for religious fragmentation. How did the Reformation come about? When one is confronted with a problem, usually stemming from a system that is too powerful or too rigid for adjustment, when a system is this way, an idea that challenges, it challenges the very system itself, this is the moment when Reformation begins to knock on the door. 
The question is, will the door be pulled open from the inside of the system, or will the door be pushed open from outside the system? Let me define reformation for you just so we're all on the same page. This is actually in the dictionary. This is not Eric's definition. I have a few additional words, but I will save that for another time. Reformation is the action or process of reforming an institution or a practice. It's a reformation of reforming an institution or a practice. It also makes reference to what I just mentioned, a 16th century movement for the reform of the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church, ending the establishment of the Reformed and Protestant churches. The Reformation that we're going to talk about was actually referring to a political, religious, and cultural movement that began in the 15th century, in the 1500s, and it lasted about 150 years. I would write some of this stuff down because I want you to look at some timelines. Some of you don't believe God doesn't heal, not because of theology, it's because of what happened in history that created a theology. And I'm going to unpack that as we do the talk. This 150-year reformation ended when the treaty was signed to end a 30-years war. They say Germany lost 40% of its population as a result of this one war alone. Imagine that right now. That would be America losing around 200 million people in one war in 30 years. During a 30-years war, took out 40% of the German population. Some of the key ideas that fueled the Reformation were the call to purify the church and the belief that the Bible, not tradition, should be the sole source of authority. That was the drive of the religious part of this Reformation. The spark that started the flame was on October 31st, which I find it quite unusual and kind of cool that we're literally on the same weekend but many hundreds of years later. The spark that started the flame was a man named Martin Luther. He went to the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed to the door what's called the 95 Thesis. If you're unfamiliar with the 95 Thesis, this is one of the most viral posts ever posted in all of humanity. <laughs> to prove the virality of this post, we are experiencing the result of these 95 Thesis posted 500 plus years ago. The only thing more viral than this was Jesus himself. Might be a slight exaggeration on how viral this post was, but my point is this. These 95 features shaped the church for the next 500 and it continues to shape the church. In fact, in my opinion, has robbed a lot of us of what it means to follow Jesus. However, Luther has some really, really good point. If you don't know who Martin Luther is, if you ever heard of Lutheran churches, that is the byproduct of Martin Luther's beliefs and his life. So look around, there's a lot of Lutheran churches. His movement definitely took off. But he had a big issue with the, with the Roman Catholic Church. His main concern was this, the selling of indulgences, where people would pay money for their sins to be forgiven. This was his main qualm, his main issue with the Catholic Church, is that you could pay indulgences so that the, the clergy could forgive you of your sins. This is not in Scripture. This is just an, an evolving theological thing that took place within the Roman Church. If you go to Europe now, sadly, lots of the beautiful cathedrals and duomos that you see all throughout Europe were built on indulgences. 
In fact, when my wife and I were in Italy a few years ago for our 20th anniversary, they were telling us that when they ran out of money to build some of the most cathedr beautiful cathedrals in Italy, they did more indulgences so they can raise more money for people could pay money to have their sins forgiven. This is how they funded a lot of these beautiful cathedrals that we see. Now, what's fascinating is in the previous century, we have what's called the Gutenberg Printing Press. The Gutenberg Printing Press was not the first printing press ever developed, but it was the first printing press that was actually able to mass manufacture literature. Printing presses go back earlier, but they were not at the scale where you can mass produce literature at a rate like you and I are so used to today. So when Gutenberg developed this printing press, guess who took advantage of this printing press? Martin Luther. Martin Luther took, took, took advantage of what a very remarkable piece of technology in the 14th century, now we're in the 15th century, many people say that this printing press alone, this invention actually created a middle class in society. Because before the printing press, the only people that could read or had access to learn to read or access to literature were the elite of society. In the religious spectrum, in the government spectrum, and in the business spectrum. If you were not elite in society, you were automatically lower class because you were most likely, high, high likelihood you were illiterate. So you couldn't read, you couldn't educate yourself. So when the printing press was developed, what it did, it created opportunity for people to have access to information and knowledge. One of the products of this, no one actually had a Bible specifically in this part of Europe that they could actually read. So all interpretation of scripture, all interpretation of anything related to God was conveyed to you from the clergy in the Roman Catholic Church. Talk about a powerful person. They can shape and form anything to their advantage if they have any character flaws and just the fact that they're human. So you had no ability to challenge, confront, or know if they were telling the truth. So when the Gutenberg printing press was now getting steam, if you will, Martin Luther took advantage of it, and they say between the year 1518 and 1525, seven years alone, Luther published more works than the next 17 most prolific reformers combined. So Martin Luther took advantage of a technology to spread his theology and doctrine and his teaching. He was incredibly smart. <clears throat> What's interesting about this movement and the Reformation, they fractured the church from Roman Catholicism into what they call Protestantism or Protestants. If you're wondering, most churches, I'm not going to say most because I don't know who I'm talking to. In America, Protestant church is predominantly the largest organization when it comes to churches. You can have everyone from Baptist to Assemblies of God to Evangelical. It's a very wide stream called Protestantism. Have you ever wondered how they got their name? They did not name themselves. The word Protestant actually comes from the word protest. So guess who named them protesters or Protestants? The enemy, the person on the other side of the conversation. What's interesting, you will often be named in history by the person on the other side of the line. So my question to us today, what will we be named? What will we be 
named? What will this next generation of reformers be named? What will they go by? The great challenge to me, because I know what I don't want to be named. I don't want to be known for what I'm against. I want to be known for what I'm for. Okay, I'm going to give you a few other notable moments in the Reformation in the 150-year span. In 1520, Luther outlined the doctrine in a very well-known Christian publication called The Priesthood of All Believers. And in this publication, he denied the Pope all authority to interpret and confirm Scripture. It's hard for us to understand what the courage it took to stand up against the most powerful force in all of European society and say you have no authority to interpret or confirm and the final authority on scripture. This, I, I couldn't even find a modern day example to, to describe how much courage that took. The first reformation caused great division and fracture in the church. What if this next reformation actually brings the church together? In 1522, Luther translation of the New Testament in the German language, which allowed every person to understand the biblical ground of what would be taught. This was a game changer. No longer was the power was the religious clergy. It actually now people, the literacy rate with the Gutenberg printing press and Martin Luther was a huge reason because he produced so much literature that people began to read and it created what they call a middle class. And now because you had a growing number of people able to actually read and understand the Bible, they were able to actually create healthier balance in what was actually being communicated because they could actually read what was being taught. This is a powerful moment. Another interesting note toward the latter end of the Reformation in 1633, this is towards the end of the Reformation, this is where we get Galileo was declared a heretic for his support in scientific theories of Copernicus. Now you might be wondering who is Copernicus? The theories were, does the earth revolve around the sun or does the sun revolve around the earth? The worldview in that era was that the earth is the center of the universe and everything revolves around the earth. It was actually, they had their scripture to back it up and Galileo had a telescope and he said basically this, it's not that, that actually our solar system revolves around the sun. And he was considered a heretic. What's funny to me is that in a museum in Florence, there's actually a display of his middle finger. I think he got the last words. A couple more things and then we're gonna jump into miracles and healings. Another important note, many will say secularism and secular democracy was birthed out of the Reformation. Let's ask for another time. Fascinating because I love design and art. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation pinpoint a major shift in design in churches. Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism, they made their buildings beautiful, stained glass, painting, pieces of art. And the Protestants came through and said that's distracting people from actually worshiping God. So when you look at church design and building post-Reformation, the building became minimalist and stark and empty because they didn't want to distract anybody from actually, in their opinion, from worshiping God. What's fascinating is Martin Luther would actually, we can thank him for the advancement of music. He was a musician and a songwriter himself. 
And so he embraced music within the church, and you can actually trace some of the, the origins of rock music, if you will, specifically in the church realm, is because Martin Luther embraced music. So there were some beautiful things, and there were some very interesting things. But this is what I want to get to for today. I could go on about a lot of Reformation things, but I said all that to give you context. We we're experiencing a major political shifts, cultural shifts, and within the creative space and every space and culture it undergoing what we call a reformation or renaissance. But something that's actually not talked about as a byproduct of the reformation is why I wanna bring up today. While this is taking place across culture in the back rooms of the reformation, another conversation develops. And it had to do with the power of God as it relate to the miracle and healing. The Catholic Church prior to the Reformation saw a power shift from the laity to the clergy. If you don't know what laity means, laity means the common person, the lay person, the people that are sitting in the pews and in the chairs. And the clergy is obviously the bishop, the pastor, etc., etc. And what happened right before the Reformation, the Catholic Church actually shifted the power from the laity to the clergy. And this was a significant change in direction for the church. This change created a paradigm that anyone that walked in healing or prophecy was considered a witch. Now, let me refresh your memory. How many have ever watched a movie that's set in medieval times? Have you noticed anyone that's spiritual or does anything unnatural or supernatural was always a witch or a warlock of some sort? Because by that point in human history, if you were doing those things, you were automatically considered a witch or a warlock. And so what happened is they, they basically alienated a people that actually was hearing from God, but because they were not embraced, many of them went to the dark side. But this was because the church basically took the power away. Instead of equipping the church, they brought it back to the clergy. And so basically you just attended church. So you have that going on pre-Reformation. And this is now carried over into the Reformation. There was also a move away from, I want you to write this down, a warfare worldview or a blueprint worldview. This is, if you're going to get anything, I want you to get this. Are you guys still with me? You're burning calories. You're doing great. Look at your neighbor. You're doing great. There was a move away from warfare worldview to what's called a blueprint worldview. Gregory Boyd, who's still alive today, he's a great theologian. He's got some incredible insights into a lot of different, different points of theology. He coined these phrases, blueprint worldview and warfare worldview. Let me read the definitions to you to just keep it really clean. The warfare worldview is based on the conviction that our world is engaged in a cosmic war between a myriad of agents, both human and angelic, that have either aligned themselves with God or with Satan. Simply put, there is a battle of good and evil, and your worldview recognizes we're either, we're, if you're a believer following Jesus, you're fighting against evil. There is a war against good and evil. That is a warfare worldview. A blueprint worldview is very, very different. It assumes that everything somehow fits into the meticulous plan and mysterious, mysterious purposes of God. A divine blueprint. 
These are common phrases that are made by people that embraced a blueprint worldview. God has his reasons. There's a purpose for everything. His ways are not our ways. That is the result of someone that embraces a blueprint worldview. In other words, everything that happened, there's a divine plan, and God orchestrated according to a design or a blueprint. Are you guys still with me? So onto the scene steps another man that I want to introduce you, John Calvin. We talked about Martin Luther earlier, and now I want to introduce to you John Calvin. John Calvin and Martin Luther were some of the most important figures in church history during this era. Whether you agree with them or not, it's not the point, but they made some waves. Let's just say that. They were confronted with what they said were abuses of power by the Roman Catholics, and they were also confronted with the Roman Catholic belief that when healing and miracles were present, it authenticated their doctrines and beliefs. So, what am I trying to say? Is that the challenge that Calvin and Luther had with the Roman Catholic Church is that they were teaching doctrines and beliefs, such as indulgences being one of them. The 95 theses that Martin Luther posted were hit point. This is where you're all wrong. The problem with the Catholics were saying, we have miracles and signs and wonders taking place. This authenticates everything we're saying is true. They most likely got that when Jesus said, if you don't see miracles, don't believe a word I said. So we have a major issue now because Calvin and Luther are like, we don't agree with this theology. And I bet you some of you go, man, those are some interesting points of theology within the Catholic Church. But the problem is they were saying we have miracles, which is pretty insightful. The Catholic Church was experiencing miracles and healing as normative. So normal that John Calvin and Luther got so fed up with, they now had to find a way to dismantle, to separate signs and wonders from the Catholic doctrines and teachings. This wasn't a simple occurrence. This was a normative thing within the Catholic framework, which I think is pretty encouraging on so many levels. So Calvin developed what is now called cessationism. I'm going to spell it for you just so you don't think I'm saying sensationism. It's cessationism, C-E-S-S-A-T. I-O-N-I-S-M, cessationism. Cessationism is the belief that the spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 died when the apostles died, the ones that you read about in the Bible. Cessationism is the belief that when those men died, all spiritual gifts died with them. The challenge with that right out the gate is this. The spiritual gifts were evident in non-apostles. And in early documents, you can read about signs and wonders and miracles happening all the way up to 300 AD in the early church. In case you are wondering what the explanation is for this continuing after the apostles died, so the point is this, how come healings and miracles were happening after the apostles died? So the response was, it's for the purpose to help establish the church. But once established, it was no longer needed. John Calvin had a caveat in his teaching that at some point, if signs and wonders come, it must mean the church is not established. So it is used to help establish the church. Once the church is established, it is no longer available. 
This was Calvin. In his response to dealing with the Catholic Church, he created a significant problem. What am I saying? Sometimes when you react to one problem, you create even more of another significant problem. Now, I want to propose in this room, some of you in this room do not believe God can heal or not. Now, I don't know where everybody's at. I say this with all grace and all humility. Everything I shared today, I want you to think about this. It's less of a theology as much as the two guys that were mad at the institution of church and created a theology that was anti-miracles and healings. So do some homework and go back and look a little deeper than just the theology that you've been taught or grew up in or exposed to when it comes to miracles and healings. Why would you throw away one of the very things that built the church? Miracles and healings. Why would you throw away the key that actually built the very foundation that everything is built upon? So both Calvin and Luther, Luther embraced sickness as a way into enter, entering into the sufferings of Jesus. So when you take that and you couple that with a blueprint worldview, which everything that happened is by God's design, and then you end the spiritual gifts, you essentially kill any notion that healing is to be normative. This proved to be incredibly damaging and the church is still recovering it from it centuries later. I am standing here today in this particular part of America to make a statement. We must recapture this for this next generation. We must understand the very key that built the church and the early church is the same key that continues to build the church. So here's some questions. I'm gonna to have to wrap this up for today. Maybe some of you are really happy about that and some of you are like, what? Again, this is why we have multiple weeks laid out to dedicate purely to this. Here's some final questions I want you to ask. The last reformation put the word of God into the hands of people by the printing press. What if this one puts it back into the hearts of people? Just like the last reformation with the call to purify the church, what if this one is to purify our hearts? What if, uh, what if this next reformation is about rediscovering the characteristic of the early church, which was prayer, eating together, fellowship, studying together, and walking in the power of his spirit. What action will we eventually be named by? What technological advancement, disruptive technologies will this reformation utilize? Will this reformation bring the church to a place? Let me make it more personal. Will this reformation bring you as a follower of Jesus to a place where healing is normative? And that the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 is unleashed. Let me read a scripture to you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. My challenge to you today is that no matter what background, what upbringing, or your current understanding of this topic, whether you've been following Jesus or you don't even know if God is even real, no matter where you fit in the human life experience. My challenge to you, for those that are following Jesus, as my dad said, Jesus is perfect theology. We must resemble our lives after the life of Jesus. And when it comes to, I want to recapture and I want to continue with the early church, one of the key signatures of the early church, and that was miracles, and that was healings, and that was walking according to the Spirit of God. It's about the whole earth. Jesus is to be actualized, experienced, and expressed in the whole earth. Why don't you stand? Thanks for listening, and we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week and we'll see you soon.